coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. were all scared and because we knew you know we had friends that died closing the swimming pools no movie theaters no sports everything that was happening in succession I would think yes that's what went on in Withville in the summer of 1950 the rural community of Wythe County, Virginia had the highest number of polio cases per capita of anywhere in the country. It's been 18, I think it was 18 days in Roanoke Hospital, paralyzed in my back. We look back at an epidemic that has striking similarities to the COVID-19 pandemic and what we can learn from both. In this episode of Hometown Stories, we examine the summer without children. of 2021 is in some ways similar to the Withville of the 1950s. It's a small, tightly knit Southwest Virginia community with mom and pop shops up and down its wide main street. It still has a very Mayberry vibe to it. And I always know I'm approaching Withville on the interstate because the town has a water tower decorated like a rainbow colored hot air balloon. It's at the intersection of Interstate 77 and Interstate 81. It's a crossroads town long accustomed to visitors. Today, it caters to people who want a mountain getaway. Fishing, biking, hiking, quaint boutiques, wineries, and now even a few breweries. Cheers. How would you describe it here? It's a great place to raise kids. Everybody knows everyone. And, uh, Usually very friendly. And I don't know, I'm, I'm prejudiced because it's, I grew up here and had a very, very good life here, so. That's Jean Lester. She's an energetic and petite woman who has us meet her at the Withville Golf Club, where she spends a lot of her free time. And every person we encounter there knows Miss Jean. She wears a long necklace with several charms, each representing the birthdays of her children, her grandchildren, and her well, great-grandchildren. I'm Jean Lister, and we are in Whitfield, Virginia. Uh, so you're born and raised here? Absolutely, yeah. Right out in the county, to a place called Crockett. Jean grew up a country kid. Her childhood summers consisted of picnics, bike rides down country lanes, playing in the creeks, and the big outing into town once a week. Oh, Saturday was big day. You had to come in on Saturday and uh, did your shopping and probably dinner. Uh, and then, of course, double feature movie for all the kids. 
that was the, the big thing was the double feature when the news we've got the news on saturday that was there was no television radio was all the electronics we had for much of the early 1900s, Whitville was also a popular summer destination for Southern visitors, people from Louisiana looking for some relief from the heat and the cool mountain air. It's the kind of place where open windows at night are enough to keep you comfortable. Out in the country, it was mostly farmland, but down Main Street, it was like the stereotypical towns of the era you see on old TV shows and movies. You had your drugstores like Owens and Owens, Coca-Cola and Goodyear Tire advertisements up and down the street, the Millwall Theater, the Leggins Department Store, Derby Grill, a popular spot for teenagers, and then the ball field. Home to the semi-professional baseball team, the Statesmen. Which was arguably the biggest thing going on in town these summers, drawing a sizable crowd on any given game night from all over. Jean was 13 the summer of 1950 and very much looking forward to the long days ahead. Oh, picnics and bicycling and the pool and baseball games. Uh, the things that kids would have done. And that's how life and summers often went in quiet, quaint Whitville until the summer of 1950. I'm the youngest of a family of five, so I would always hear my brothers and sisters talking about it. That's Frances Emerson. She's the director of the town's museums. I meet her in the main local museum in an exhibit dedicated entirely to the summer of 1950. So we've always had a lot of people traveling this way to go south or east-west, and that all slowed down during the war years. So they were building back up. That was supposed to be their summer of tourism and welcoming people to come back. And then just everything halted. What happened next is the reason this museum exhibit exists. It's known chillingly as the summer without children. I imagine it was a scary time. It was a scary summer. It was terrifying. With County, like many places around the country, had an outbreak of polio. But unlike those other places, the polio spread here was far worse. That summer, the county had the worst polio outbreak per capita in the entire country. When did you start to hear that something was happening or that, that maybe people were getting sick? Early in June, so uh, they had a few cases. And I don't know when they got scared that it was going to be an epidemic, but it was it, quickly. Very quickly. So what exactly is polio? I mean, I know we're vaccinated against it. President Franklin D. Roosevelt famously battled it. And at least for those of us in the United States, now we really don't have to think about it. But why? I appreciate your time. No, no, no. I'm happy. This is one of my favorite topics. Dr. Bill Petrie is both professor in infectious disease at the University of Virginia and he's actively seeing patients. He's traveled the world studying polio, working his way up from member to chair of the Polio Research Committee of the World Health Organization. How long has polio been around? Oh, well, it's been around for a long time because if you look at the uh, Egyptian tombs, you know, from like thousands of years before Christ, there's, there's actually a, a, a relief of a priest and he has like one leg that is withered. And the, the thought is that that probably was polio that caused paralysis and you know, loss of muscle tone. 
in, in that leg. So, so this probably goes back, you know, to way, way, way long time ago. Petrie explains live poliovirus can be excreted, and it's most often spread by dirty food and water. The virus gets into your gut and then your bloodstream. And from there, it can go to your spinal cord, where it destroys the neurons that carry motor signals from your brain to your legs or arms. And that's how people became paralyzed, though paralysis from the disease was and still is quite rare. And it has made polio um, epidemics I think a bit unpredictable in the past was that the older you are, usually the worse is polio, surprisingly. And so if you're exposed to polio virus when you're an infant, it's unusual to get paralysis from it. But if you're like five years old, 10 years old, the much more common that the infection actually causes symptoms of paralysis. We didn't really see like a lot of polio in the United States until paradoxically, we improved our sanitation. And so as water got cleaner, as food was safer, uh, it delayed when someone was infected with polio. So it, it wasn't clean enough that we could completely prevent polio infections, but it was, but it delayed the onset of the infection. And so this is why in the 1940s, 1950s, we started seeing outbreaks of paralytic polio. Frances Emerson and her museum staff shared with me an oral history book about this outbreak written in the early 2000s with personal experiences of the people who lived it. It includes an excerpt from a local named Jimmy Kinser, who remembers being concerned about sanitation that summer, particularly out in the country, where most people still used outhouses. Withville's town manager in 1950 remembers stepping up efforts to deal with the sewage during that outbreak, treating it with two to three times the normal amount of chlorination. The whole experience actually expedited efforts to modernize the town's sewage treatment. Jimmy Kinser said the outbreak spurred people to clean the outhouses up, get rid of them, and eventually switch to indoor plumbing, marking the beginning of the end of the old privy. People of all ages could get polio and be affected in different ways. But this was also regularly referred to as the disease of infantile paralysis. Why did children bear the brunt of these outbreaks? Yes, the, the most likely explanation is that the adults have already been exposed in the past, and so they have antibodies against it. So again, similar to COVID-19, if you have antibodies against the coat of the virus um, that protects you from, from paralysis, the virus is not able to invade from the small intestine into the bloodstream to get to the spinal cord. And so these epidemics that we were seeing in the 1950s, almost all in children, is, is most likely because the adults were immune. The first known polio case that summer, according to town memory, was 18-month-old Johnny Sacafico. He was the son of Jim Sacafico, second baseman for the Woodville Statesman. There's a picture of baby John in the book from the museum, and there's one of his dad, too. Jim is kneeled in front of the wooden dugout, one hand on his knee, the other holding his bat, sporting his statesman uniform. And John is pictured sitting on a table with a smiling nurse at his side. He's got a brace around his torso and a wide, cheeky grin on his face. And John always said his mother told him he was like the mascot. 
he was the only, I think his father was the only married player on the team. And he was the only little child. And so he would run around, he would be interacting with all the people at the game. You know, he was just a very active little guy who enjoyed, I guess, all the attention. He was in the children's hospital in Roanoke for a couple of weeks. And the doctors didn't think he would survive. We were married for just shy of 30 years when he died in March 2019. This is Alice Sakafico, the woman who met John in the late 80s and married him within a year of dating. What was it that stood out to you about him, about his demeanor and his personality, or what do you think it was that drew you to him? His smile first. It was a, He just had this wonderful smile. He was upbeat. He was happy. We just clicked. He always told me he fell in love with me because I was kind. And despite his disability, it didn't pose a large obstacle to our relationship and our marriage. And he was funny. He was bright. And those are the same qualities and memories his stepdaughter, Sarah Harper, still holds dear. In any situation, he would see the positives in it. He came into my life when I was three. He's my stepfather, but I just always called him dad. But for all his cheeriness, they say John was a man who, especially in his later years, endured a lot of pain. His bout with polio as a child left him almost completely paralyzed. He had quadriparesis, which meant that his bottom half, waist down, was completely paralyzed, but his hands and his trunk and everything had significant paralysis. They weren't 100% paralyzed, but he, you know, he was, had to go into a manual uh, electric wheelchair in his later years. And he, you know, after sitting for 50 years, every day, you know, every minute, he had, he had intense pain. Um, but those who met him would never know that. He, he kept that private and, you know, he eventually, um, he eventually succumbed to the polio. John Sakafico was one of the more than 180 documented polio cases in Wythe County that summer. After his diagnosis, more cases started cropping up. At what point did your family start to maybe make some changes or... When did you guys start? In, in that June. That June. That June, because I know uh, we had just gotten out of school. And it did not, I don't think any cases were announced while the school was going on. So it was right after we got out of school. And we had great plans for the summer, you know. Then didn't get to leave my yard <laughs> until October. Jean says she is not exaggerating. She really did not leave her yard. That's how petrified people became when more than just a handful of cases began springing up. I have a kid brother who, I'll tell you, he turned 80 this year, and he just told me a story about the, the other day about the epidemic. And he said, uh, I had an older brother and a younger brother, and my grandmother was coming to town to bring her eggs in and also do the Saturday morning shopping. And so the boys begged and begged her, could they ride into town with her just to get out of the house? And she said, yes, if you promise to stay in the truck, do not get out of the truck. Absolutely do not get out of the truck. 
and he said as soon as she went to the store, of course, the boys got out of the truck and ran up the alley there beside of the theater now and the Bain Street's affecting to see the Saturday morning stuff. And all of a sudden there was not a car, not a person, not a store open. And he said it looked like it got ghost town. And so we ran right back and jumped in the truck and never told anyone. A couple of folks in town told me I needed to meet Zan Arnold. I found him on his lunch break at an auto shop in town. He was three years old that summer and says he remembers being treated by local nurses who wrapped him up in wet wool blankets before taking him to the hospital. Spent 18, I think it was 18 days in Bromo Hospital. Uh, paralyzed in my back and uh, got over that. But, uh, uh, but before I went to Roanoke, uh, we had a local doctor here in town, Dr. A.B. Grubb, and uh, he doctored me for it uh, before I went to Roanoke. My picture was in the Look magazine back in the 50s. I had a, my picture was in it. I remember all of that. That picture is one of the most iconic from that summer. It's actually on the cover of the book Francis gave me, which contains the oral histories about the outbreak. It's a striking black and white image. In the center of the photograph is Zan's father, Leslie, looking down at a bundle in his arms. It's Zan, bound tightly in those blankets. Only the crown of his head is visible at one end. The photo, snapped by Gene Abbott, was circulated and appears on the front page of the Evening Star, a DC newspaper, on August 16, 1950. Arnold is flanked by two women dressed in white, a nurse and a physiotherapist, according to the caption. You can feel the urgency in this picture and see clearly the strain in Leslie Arnold's face. A man making haste to get his son to the hospital for treatment, unsure of what's next. The entire county tallied 17 deaths that summer, a staggering loss for such a small community. Zan was among the more fortunate ones. Not only did he come home, but he was able to live a somewhat normal life in a community that rallied to support one another during a time of great fear. The iron lung behind me is a prime example of that. The iron lung as we now know it was developed in the late 1920s. Patients were laid down in the mechanical cylinder with only their heads sticking out, and a ring around their necks helped seal the artificial respirator. Then a motor, or a hand crank, adjusted the pressure in the chamber, which helped the paralyzed patient's body inhale and exhale. Some people became dependent on the machine to help them breathe efficiently, especially at night. Uh, this gentleman, Lee Hale, lived in it for over 30 years. He was in a community out in the county. Um, every neighbor around there was trained on how to operate this. His family was trained on how to operate it. So if there was a power failure, people could step in and keep him alive. We know a lot more about polio now than we did then. So as the case count climbed that summer, people began to worry, isolate, and wonder how it was spreading. Eugene Warren was one of the teenagers who spent his summer working at the drugstore. He described how diligent they tried to be to keep from spreading polio, 
even though nobody really understood how it was spreading. His account reminds me a lot of the disinfect your groceries phase of our pandemic. We heard every theory. We heard uh, mostly flies, mosquitoes, insect-borne of some kind, uh, being together with other people in a crowd. You absolutely didn't want to be in a crowd around anybody with anyone. That's what the young children avoided, and uh, that's about all we knew about it. Eugene even said that every night after closing at 9 o'clock, they set off a DDT bomb in the store. If your jaw hasn't dropped yet, remember that DDT is a now banned insecticide in the United States. It's suspected of being a carcinogen, and DDT poisoning is blamed in part for the mid-century decline of the bald eagle. After setting off those DDT bombs, Eugene remembers holding his breath and running out the door. They left out fly killers to do the job overnight, and sometimes spent nights after work shooting rats at the local dump. And we were very careful. We washed all the time. As a matter of fact, with this project is going down to the town dump, uh, the pharmacist had made up a solution of bichloride of mercury. And when we came back from down there, the first thing we did was clean ourselves, our shoes, and disinfect ourselves. There are even accounts of the local funeral home director's wife making him leave his clothes on the porch before coming inside. One of the bankers was said to be dousing the money in fly spray. Eugene and Carter Beamer, with Phil's town manager in 1950, said some locals considered the outbreak an act of God, with Carter recalling that some of the more fanatical preachers suggested their sins were catching up with them. They thought it might be in the creeks, so none of us were allowed to go into the creek waiting, and so that was a country thing, you know, playing in the creeks. Then they sprayed DDT everywhere, like they thought flies maybe carrying it. Yeah, I had wondered about the DDT, because obviously today it sounds like a, like a ludicrous thing to do, but if they thought that that was what... Yeah, uh, and they thought insects, and they put on the trucks, big trucks came up the street and sprayed. And I can remember my, uh, my husband, he thought it was neat fun to run along the side and play in the spray. That's what the kids were doing, and because it was, they were spraying the DDT and all the trees and shrubberies in town, yeah. Didn't affect us because we're out in the country. They get spray out there, yeah. But they were really concerned about the drinking water. As the case numbers rose, many families in town decided to rent cabins at nearby lakes like Hungry Mother State Park or Claytor Lake to get out of town. Others chose to send their children to the country for the summer. My first cousin, her next-door neighbor, got the polio and so her parents brought her to the country thinking she'd be more isolated in the country than she was downtown. And she was five. And she stayed with us the whole time and didn't get to see her mother. Her mother would not come near her. She uh, didn't know what she was doing, but she thought that if she packed the comic books and the books in brown paper bags and then baked them in the oven, which, very smart, and then she would just leave them at our driveway. She wouldn't bring them to the house. And we'd go to the mailbox and pick up the books and read them and then take them back. And then she'd do it for other kids. At your house, you would put your grocery list in a milk bottle and put it out on the porch. And they would pick it up. Um, or you would you would take your order to the grocery store and they would they would bring it outside, similar things like that. Um, I think with, with the children, it was keeping them home, closing the swimming pools. No movie theaters, no sports. 
So they came up with games to be played on the radio and in the newspaper. The radio and the newspapers were essential. Especially when very few folks had TV sets. Jim Williams was editor of the semi-weekly newspaper, the Southwest Virginia Enterprise. Francis tells me he made a big sign outside of his office with an update of how many cases had been confirmed and how many days since the last confirmed case. It was actually Williams who was said to have called Withville that summer a town without children because he couldn't find any kids to hire to deliver the papers apart from his own son. A newspaper columnist, Sally Wolfenden, called it the summer without children, writing that it was like the Pied Piper had visited and whisked them away. With people at home and no summer activities, locals took to the airwaves to stay informed and entertained. But the radio and the newspaper offered games and puzzles with prizes donated by various people and businesses in the community. That was the only entertainment that we had, really, in uh, some of the teachers read stories, and then there were some classes over the radio. Like, at, say, 2 o'clock on Tuesday, we were going to do fourth grade math. And I think we did well in school because we had nothing to do all summer but read and listen to the radio. As July dragged on, more people succumbed to polio. The community scrambled for solutions, and the news started to spread. D.L. Barnett, as a funeral home director, was also one of the operators of the town's ambulances. Here's Barnett remembering the experience in his oral history interview. But all the towns around here thought it was contagious. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, they rolled up the windows when they go through town, people wouldn't come to with them. And they call off all the church services, the theaters, curfew, quarantine. The community began sending its patients to the Roanoke Memorial and Crippled Children's Hospital. Just the year before, people in Withville had supported fundraisers to build a new wing in the very same hospital they were now sending their children. At least, some of them. It was 1950, and, as was typical at the time, black patients didn't get treated in the same place as white patients. Because of the segregation at the time, uh, they, they would not take them and run up to the hospitals. So they had to do the four-hour drive to Richmond. But ironically, they got better medical care there, and I think their survival rate was much higher there. But um, it, was, it was just unfortunately typical of that time period. From Withville, the Roanoke Hospital was 80 miles away. The Richmond Hospital was 300 miles away. Mrs. Sammy Cook, mother of polio victim Betty Jean, recalled in her interview with oral historians that when it came time to get her daughter to a hospital, they sat in an ambulance in the hot sun with no air conditioning while Dr. Charlie Graham pleaded with the Roanoke Hospital to admit her. The hospital refused and thus began the long, hot journey to Richmond to get her care. Withville had but one clinic, Chitwood's Clinic, located above Leggett's department store downtown. It only had about eight to 10 beds total. And the area only had a handful of doctors who barely took a break that entire summer. We had a wonderful doctor here, Dr. Charlie Graham. And my grandfather was here during that time and had a stroke while he was visiting here. And so Dr. Graham, 
made a house call and he came out one day and my sister was on the quilt in the yard reading and looking at the clouds or whatever we were doing un in, under a shade tree and Dr. Charlie Graham came in and he, my dad's name is Fred and he said, Fred, do you have a phone? And dad says, no, we use our neighbor's phone. D do you need to make a phone call? He says, no, I want to hide for a while. He said, I haven't been in bed in three days. And he said, I am totally exhausted. And that quilt under that shade tree is calling my name. And he said, can I go out there and take a quick nap? And my dad said, well, of course. So he made us all come in the house and be real quiet. And Dr. Graham said, Fred, wake me in two hours. And then I'll go back to the hospital. But he was totally exhausted. And he went to call. I can still see him out there laying under that tree, sleeping. The doctors were heralded as the heroes that summer for doing what they could among them, chasing one case, one spinal tap, one devastating diagnosis after another. But there was another group that settled into Whitfield to help patients recover. And they're a huge part of the reason we know what the polio epidemic of 1950 looked like. So you could, you can visually see the past and the present at the same time in some of these resources, and that's cool. This is Mike LaPaglia, the guy who developed the museum we're sitting in. I know maybe you try and defer from having a favorite item or a favorite photograph or a favorite piece of this exhibit, but do you have any favorites? I think the infant iron lung is one of the most impactful things I've ever seen. And to imagine the emotions of the parents and the community and the doctors and nurses and just the fear that it would set into you if you lived in a community that had this strike overnight and you didn't know where it was coming from and where it was going. LaPaglia comes from a family of museum curators and he's been working with the town of Withville for more than 25 years. But work on the polio exhibit in particular revealed a pretty remarkable discovery. What we found when we got involved with this was that because the March of Dimes was so heavily involved in spending money in Withville, raising money to spend in Withville to combat the epidemic, that they had professional photographers who had chronicled the whole epidemic here in Withville. And so we were able to present what is a professionally photographed history of the pandemic in Withville that makes a huge impact on people because that was what it was designed to do even then was to elicit fundraising. So we have a lot of resources here that we wouldn't have had if the March of Dimes hadn't been in town trying to document everything and use that to raise awareness across the country themselves. So you were like jackpot. Jackpot, yes. The National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis got its start in the late 30s and is now known for its successful fundraiser, the March of Dimes. During its first campaign in 1937, hundreds of thousands of people mailed dimes and other small change to President Franklin D. Roosevelt in support of polio patients and treatments. That same foundation helped Withfield's patients pay for expensive treatment, equipment, and rehab. One of the other interesting things well-documented were the warning signs. And I mean, like, actual signs. Installed on the highway by town leadership, they read, Information for tourists, polio outbreak in Withville and Wythe County, 
If you do not stop with us on this trip, we invite you to visit us on your next vacation. But people that came through town, see uh, Main Street was living west. And if you were going anywhere east to west or west to east in Virginia, you had to come down Main Street. And they would wear their mask and just buzz through town, would not stop with the windows up. Now I understand it and reading from the book that the signs were pretty controversial for like the business community. Did you oh, get yes. the sense that oh, the yeah. business community was mad about that? Well, not mad, just distressed because uh, stores were open, no customers, nobody was downtown, nobody stopped, and uh, everybody was scared. And the signs were warning, do not stop. And that was devastating to the businesses. In Jean's words, the community put the benefit of those potential visitors over their own pocketbooks. Mr. Barnett said that even outside of the county, people were not keen on getting close to the folks from Woodville. Towns from here to Roanoke who asked at Radford Christopher, they would forbid us to even stop at Amherst in the town. And we'd stop and get a cold drink at a film station and look out and see the Amherst. They'd say, take the drink on. You don't owe anything. Don't bring a bottle back. They were paying on it. It was a trying time for the town and county leadership. Of those controversial signs, Carter Beamer, the town manager, recalled that someone had taken them down at least once. This, he said, quote, created a little controversy but the intentions of both the town council and the board of supervisors were to do what you could say was the Christian thing and advise the people of our problem. Mayor Bill Arthur declared Sunday, July 30th as a community day of prayer. He was quoted in the oral history book as saying, there is power in prayer. There should be unlimited power in prayers offered by a whole united community. Let us try it. I make this suggestion in all sincerity and humility. In reading and listening back on these oral history interviews, this whole summer seemed very similar to the start of our pandemic. A lot of confusion because nobody really knew for sure how polio was spreading and not everybody could agree on how to handle it. So it was a terrible time of fear, not wanting to give in to the fear and then trying to, to come together as a community to, to face it and to make life better for those who were dealing with it. Eventually, the case count slowed down by late August, but the survivors were still recovering. The Virginia Health Department set up a physical therapy center in Withville to help them, staffed by physical therapists and medical consultants from the foundation. The shoe store on Main Street stayed busy, fitting shoes with braces. School was delayed a couple of times, but classes eventually began again in October. Children, like Jean, took note of how some of their friends returned in braces. Some returned late. Some didn't return at all. I'm sure you were eager to go back to school. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. But it must have been weird, like you said, with all the empty seats from the... Did, the... did the school do anything to sort of acknowledge that some of your classmates had passed away? Or did you kind of just resume as normal? Probably resume as normal, but you know, we would miss the kids. And see, a lot of them are still being uh, in Rome or being treated. And then, uh, but I remember uh, losing some classmates, yeah. The high school football team, 
the Maroons, delayed their first game because other schools were afraid to catch polio from them. But by the end of the year, they'd be tied for the district title. With County's young men had been deferred from the military draft that summer, according to Jean, the military was afraid to infect their boot camps with polio. But by late August, the ban was lifted. One of the neat things was we had a, a new band director who came to town and he brought in this whole spirit of uh, something new and exciting for everybody to gather around. Uh, so band became a huge community source of pride uh, after that. Christmas that year was remembered as among the most special the town could recall. The Roanoke Times wrote of that Christmas, quote, Their long, hard struggle is over. It wasn't easy. Mistakes were made and the road difficult. But this Christmas season has a double meaning for the people of Withville, for they will soon celebrate the birth of a man who, many centuries before Withville or even this nation were known, bore a heavy cross that gave the world a message of faith that has suckered it through the ages. Withville is a little bit closer to that glorious tale this Christmas season. As the years pressed on, new technological and scientific advancements gave communities like Withville hope, especially when Dr. Jonas Salks and then Dr. Albert Sabin's vaccines were made available. Do you recall anybody being hesitant to take? No. Really? <laughs> I mean, they were lined up ready to, ready to go. They didn't question it, like they're doing this one now. To my knowledge, they didn't. And see, I would, by this time, I would have been an adult and a nurse. And I don't remember any, there was no question. And you had to have it to go to school. Thousands of children participated in clinical trials. Called the polio pioneers, they helped prove that these vaccines were safe and effective. People lined up in droves for the Sabin Oral Sundays, where instead of a shot, they got their vaccine through a sugar cube placed on their tongue. But for some, it came just a little too late. When John was six years old, he got the polio vaccine in his school. And the nurse said to him, just think if they had had this vaccine a few years earlier, you wouldn't be in this position. And he's like, that's like really stung him. Eventually, over the years, polio was pretty much eliminated in the United States. And two of the three strains of wild polio virus have been completely eradicated from the earth. Still, as time went on, Withville never forgot what it went through that awful summer. How do you think that summer um, affected you as you continued to grow up? Or how do you, what kind of impact do you feel like that summer made on your life? Or did it, did it make a significant impact? I don't know. Um, and I don't know if it influenced me to be interested in medicine or not, but I think it did uh, because I admired Dr. Graham and them so much, and I think that may have had some influence for me to choose nursing because I never thought of doing anything else, never. The Sakafico family never forgot either. After his treatment in Roanoke, John's family returned to New Jersey permanently. His father gave up baseball, put away his bat and glove, and never talked about it again. It was very difficult for his parents because it changed the trajectory of their life as well. Alice tells me her husband became a social worker and family therapist because of all the help he'd gotten in his life. He wanted to repay the kindness of strangers 
including Withville baseball fans who passed around a hat during games to collect money for the young family right after his diagnosis. Those fans wondered, for decades, whatever happened to little Johnny Sicafico? John would tell Alice and Sarah about what he remembered about that time and always wondered what it would be like to return to Withville. Alice, planner of the family vacations, surprised him with a trip, unknowingly arriving into town 50 years to the day John got polio. They went to the museum, where members of the community came out to meet him, connect, and make up for lost time. And it was almost cathartic, I think, in a way. He didn't harbor ill will, as my daughter said. It, it was more of a connecting with your roots, connecting with this seminal event in your history that, you know, the, the time and the place from which he marked the rest of his life. I love that they have, like my mom said, told my dad's story so well and, you know, ha- always have him in their minds when they were doing the exhibit, you know, to include him and have him there. And I would like to think maybe the feeling is mutual of that connection, you know, for the town to feel connected to my dad, you know, the people who know his story and work at the museum. Because it's just, it holds a really special place in my heart and I don't think that will ever change. Francis was there too. And years later, helped organize a public forum on polio in 2004 that John was able to participate in. It was very emotional and very healing um, for him and for people who knew him of him that summer. And they always said, we always wondered what happened to you. In 2007, the museum dedicated an entire exhibit to its experience with polio, complete with the oral histories and the March of Dimes photos, painting a portrait of a town that banded together in its darkest days. But still, no answer, no definitive answer to one of its most pressing questions. It seems to me that we still have no clearer understanding of why with Phil, why then, why that many people. And and that's so important to say because we don't like to be uncertain as people. We want to come up with explanations. And then that's bad because understanding that we don't understand is is really important because that's going to help us to you know, adjust to the next outbreak of, of an infectious disease and say, hey, there, there were things that we didn't understand 60 years ago in Withville or 70 years ago now. And um, we need to like pay attention to that and, and, and see if we can with this outbreak come up to a better understanding. Intrinsically, why do you find it important that children are exposed to local history like this and particularly this exhibit? Well, I think part of what you wanna look at is they need to have some grounding in what's come before them. Particularly this exhibit, I think, is very important to show that you can overcome and that communities pull together, and that's how we make it through the hard times. They need to see that even in the times of isolation, people were not alone. I I take comfort in history. That's one of the things that this business teaches you to do. And I knew that even though it's bad, we will come out of it. There will be an approach that works. History is not dusty and on a shelf. History is something that if we take it out and look at it, we can learn from it and probably move forward in a better way. It's hard for me to determine if I would have been as drawn in by the story of the summer without children had we not just experienced similarly terrifying summers. You can't help but draw parallels between the polio epidemic 
and the COVID-19 pandemic, even though they differed in size. But perhaps it was a precursor, a scaled down version of a situation we've all been calling unprecedented. So it seems to me that Whitfield did have precedent in some ways, and that maybe the hope we're looking forward to might be found by looking back. Even in times of great pain, there can still be joy. And I think that's probably the lesson of his life, that there can still be great joy even when you're in pain. I want to give a big thank you to the museum staff in Withville, including Marcella Taylor, for all of their insight and assistance. As you heard me say earlier in the episode, two out of three wild poliovirus strains have been eradicated from the earth. But what about the third? The answer to that question came from Dr. Bill Petrie, and it'll be the focus of our next episode of Hometown Stories. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.